0: Mark chapter 11 verses 1 through 11. I'll read and pray and then we'll, we'll jump in. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word today, desiring to meet with you, desiring to hear from you. Lord, we recognize that as our King, as our Lord and Savior, Lord, you have drawn near to us, are present in this place. And so we ask that you would teach us. Lord, we ask that you would lead us. We ask that salvation would come to uh, to the to the lives of, of those who are here who do not yet know you that that redemption would come to our lives where there are uh, just our souls are entangled with lesser lords God we pray that that you would achieve a great victory for your kingdom today and so we turn our attention to you Lord we pray that all other distractions. All other uh, things that would lead us away from you, Lord, would uh, be be banished from this place in Jesus' name and that you would give us a single-minded focus on our Lord of lords and King of kings. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I was meeting with a friend at a coffee shop the other day and maybe you've had a similar experience as this. You ever standing outside of a coffee shop or a restaurant and, uh, and waiting for the person that, that, that is meeting you there. And then you see them from a distance. Um, my friend came around the corner a little more than a block away. And so I immediately start playing that weird game in my mind where how close do I let them get to me before I wave? <laughs> Your laughter indicates that I'm not alone. Thank you, Jesus. And I'm, I'm looking at him because if you wave too soon then you're just like, you're standing there and, and they're, as they walk up and it's awkward because they're not close enough to say anything. and You can't like give them a hug or anything, you know? So you can't wave too soon. But if you, if you wait too long to wave and then they, they know that you see them, then it's like, maybe you're not happy to see them. So if you're anything like me, uh, what you do is you pretend to be looking at your phone <laughs> and just like out of the periphery of your vision looking and then with impeccable timing, Oh, hey, (laughs) it's good to see you. I totally didn't see you there. I don't know why this is such a big deal for me. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, Adam, it's really not that big of a deal. Well, I have a job for you then. We need greeters to greet people as they come. You see people, they get out of their cars and it's like this, it's this game. When to say hi. If that's not a big deal for you, then you should sign up to serve as a greeter. But imagine this person that you're meeting is, is, a, is a lifelong friend. It's somebody that you love deeply. You haven't seen them in, in a long time. Maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's your, your best friend or a spouse that's returned from uh, you know, a, t- a business trip or something like that. Now, when you're waiting for them, you, you, you see them approaching. You don't, you don't wait to say hi. You run to them. You run to them in joy and celebration and thanksgiving. It's, it's, it's not the awkward on your phone thing. It's like those scenes from the movie where two people are just running in slow motion, you know, and they just embrace. You go out to see them. And so this scene in Mark is describing just this. Israel has been without their king for centuries, but here he is entering Jerusalem in triumphal procession. And so our text is full of imagery that is declaring that Jesus is king. First, Mark's Roman audience would have understood that Jesus is being treated as a king returning from victory in battle. This this scene, this triumphal procession, it it, it reflects the way kings would be celebrated as they returned from war. Because when a king went off to war, it was not guaranteed that they would come back. If the king came back after war, it meant that the king had been victorious. The king still reigns, hallelujah. But if the king did not return, that would mean that the people would be visited by another king who would often destroy the city and its inhabitants. In fact, the word gospel originally referred to the good news that was proclaimed throughout the country that the king would return victorious. The battle had been won. The king is victorious. He is on his way. He is returning. Your king still reigns. That's the good news that the king still reigns. That's the original understanding of the word gospel. And so this would set the people in motion to prepare a celebration that was fit for their king. Today, uh, the ticker tape parades that cities throw for teams that return victorious after winning a championship, they have a similar vibe. Only today, when a, city, uh, when a city's team wins in sport, really all they get is bragging rights. Uh, whereas in the ancient world, if the king returns in victory, you get to keep your life as the stakes were significantly higher. But it's that same vibe, that celebration of those who have gone out and fought for us, they're returning victorious. So Mark's Roman audience would have understood in this context. But second, Mark's Jewish audience would have understood that Jesus' kingship, they would have understood Jesus' kingship here in light of their own messianic expectations. Their their hopes for Messiah's coming. See, Zechariah 9.9 describes the coming of this Messiah King. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, the Jewish people had been waiting for centuries for this day. They'd been looking for it. They'd been anticipating it. They could not have experienced what Jesus is doing in this scene in any other way without connecting it with the thought that this could be the king they've been waiting for. So the Roman audience would understand that. The Jewish audience would understand it in this way. But lastly, Jesus himself believes that he is the promised king. He intentionally arranges this scene to reflect Zechariah 9.9. He providentially ensures that the people would see him in this way. Now, some people have a hard time with this. Some people will have a hard time with the fact that Jesus seems to uh, uh, create an environment, to create a situation that intentionally fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9, nine, sending the disciples to find the cult so that he can ride into Jerusalem in this way. And so people will say that it feels contrived. It feels like a, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's just not as cool as though it had happened accidentally. Maybe you're here and, and, and that's been something that you've wrestled with. Why does Jesus do it this way? I don't buy that, that it's, it shouldn't make us uncomfortable. Many times the people who, who make these claims that, that uh, you know, this is contrived, that Jesus is setting the stage in, in this particular way, they also are the same people that, that claim that Jesus doesn't directly call himself the Messiah and so they don't believe. And so what do you want? Because if Jesus does something that intentionally declares him to be the Messiah, people will reject it as being contrived. And yet, if he doesn't do anything that claims directly to be the Messiah, people will reject him because he doesn't directly claim to be the Messiah. So you cannot have it both ways. We need to understand the the beauty in this, that Jesus does understand the, 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 the prophecies, yes, and he is intentionally arranging the events because he believes himself. He knows that he is the Messiah and he wants the people to see him as the promised king as well. And so Jesus makes it clear who he is and what he's doing. Jesus believed that he was the king coming to Jerusalem. Sometimes it's difficult for us to see how uh, Jesus fulfilling one seemingly random prophecy in the Old Testament, uh, how the the, the New Testament writers make such a big deal that sometimes we can feel um, removed from some of these messianic expectations and undertones. And so at times people say, ah, gosh, it just feels a little bit like a stretch. But the Jewish people in the first century lived in these expectations every day. They lived in this longing every day and they knew what passages of scripture pointed to the day when Messiah would come. This was their, their deepest longing to deliver them from Roman oppression. And they, they waited for their king. They, they anticipated their king. There had been rumors throughout history that maybe this is the king. No, that's not happening. Maybe this guy is gonna raise up an, an army and overthrow our oppressors. No, it wouldn't pan out. And so they lived in this anticipation. They lived in this longing. To them, it's like many, it's like, it's like the way many Christians today understand the current events that we experience in life as uh, in light of the promised return of Jesus. So we're waiting for Christ to return and it's our heart's deepest longing for Jesus to come and make all things new. And we know the prophecies in scripture. And so many people are trained up to look at the news and to look at current events as as being signs of the times. It's very similar to the Jewish world in the first century. They're waiting for their redemption just as we are waiting for our Redeemer's return. And so they're seeing all of this unfold. They're saying, could this be the one? Could this be Messiah? Could this be the one that we are waiting for? And so it was a big deal to those watching all of this unfold. This concept of the kingship or or more, more literally the lordship of Jesus it turned the entire world upside down. this, This scene, Jesus entering Jerusalem as king, it turns everything upside down. See, long before Jesus is king was the title of a Kanye West album, it was a spiritual and a political manifesto. See, because if Jesus is Lord, then nothing else is. And so it has spiritual implications. Spiritually, it linked the person of Jesus of Nazareth to the God of Israel, Yahweh. See, when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, and he he revealed his name, he said, I am who I am which in Hebrew is the word Yahweh. And this is how the God of Israel is known throughout the Old Testament. But there came a time in or around the exile or the return from exile when people were so conscious and and so fearful of breaking God's law that they, they were afraid that they might use the Lord's name in vain. And so they stopped using the name Yahweh altogether. And instead they would either say the name as they were reading scripture and they came to that word, they would just say the name, or they would replace it with the, the word Adonai, which means Lord. And so fun fact, when you're reading your Old Testament and you come across the word Lord in all caps, that is a sign to you that the word in the original language is not actually Adonai, but it's Yahweh. And so, so Lord to the, the Jewish people, was this, this placeholder name for the name of the God of Israel. And so to call Jesus Lord refers to him as not only our master and king, but it's a statement of belief that he is, in fact, one with the God of Israel. That this is our Lord. And so there are obvious spiritual implications. Most specifically, the way to worship God is to worship Jesus. The way to devote your life to the God who made heaven and earth is to devote your life to Jesus. He is the only way to the Father. But there are also political implications to this. See, the phrase Jesus is Lord was a direct attack on the Roman slogan of allegiance in the first century. Caesar is Lord. That was a a sign that you were loyal to Caesar. You would cry out, Caesar is Lord. And so Caesar was worshiped as a God in Rome and had absolute power and authority. And as Lord, he demanded absolute allegiance from his subjects. There was even another slogan during that time that people should put their faith in Caesar. They should put their trust in Caesar in Caesar. They should trust him for their safety. They should trust him for their security, for provision and peace. This was the, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It came about by putting your faith in Caesar and trusting in Caesar as Lord. And so the call to put our faith in Jesus And to trust in Jesus as Lord is a direct contradiction to the imperial cult and a declaration of allegiance to Jesus over all else, including even the emperor. This was a political statement. It is saying that if Jesus is Lord, then we owe him total allegiance. If Jesus is Lord, then nothing else is. Not even Caesar. And so this requires us to give Jesus our allegiance. Now we live, we, we guys, oh my goodness, we live in a crazy time. This season has been nuts, even politically, the nation is divided. And, and while there's only ever one president in the White House, if you watch too much of the news or spend too much time on social media, it would appear as though there are two. And they hate each other. And there's this unspoken, maybe even sometimes spoken, uh, question of allegiance. Whose America do you belong to? Which side are you on? What kind of an American are you? Americans are choosing sides against one another based on their allegiance to people or political parties and ideologies and policies and all of these things. But church, as Christians, we cannot play this game. We cannot play this game. We cannot allow politics to divide the house of God. As Christians, we can't get caught up in this because Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord, period. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of Lords and anything else in this world can can try to divide us, but there is nothing that can divide us that Christ cannot unite. I would point out that among Jesus' disciples is Matthew, the tax collector. He's basically a Jewish trader working for Rome and Simon, the zealot, who was a person who killed Jewish traders working for Rome. And they are among Jesus' disciples, there is nothing politically that can divide those who have been made one in Christ, regardless of what church they attend, regardless of how they spend their time, regardless. If Jesus is your Lord and my Lord and his Lord and her Lord, he is Lord, period. This means that outside of Jesus, there is an infinite number of things that are not Lord. Everything else, not Lord. Not worthy to give your life to. Might be a good thing, not Lord. You are not Lord. Your spouse is not Lord. No, no, no pastor. Is Lord. The president is not Lord. No political party is Lord. The Constitution is not Lord. Not even a system of government. Democracy is not Lord. Cash is not king. Science and tech cannot save you. These are good things. They are not God. They are not Lord. They're not bad. Don't hear me say that any of these things are bad. They're just not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Period. And so our allegiance is to Christ and to him alone. And so this means we submit ourselves to him and we submit ourselves to his will for our lives and for our world. Now, gosh, maybe even a dirtier word than allegiance is the word submission. We hate the word submission, Submission is a dirty word. It makes us think of authoritarian leadership that like crushes people and brings them into submission. My kids and I uh, have been training jujitsu for the last several years and submission is the goal. Like you you submit your enemy and or not your enemy, your opponent. And And so... Man, if, if you know anything about jiu-jitsu though, once you slap hands and it's on, like kill or be killed. <laughs> my, uh, my son's actually, he's competing in his first jiu-jitsu tournament this afternoon. Um, he's, super, he's super excited. I'm excited for him. But to be submitted in jiu-jitsu means you lose. You tapped out. You're done. You're quit. You have been mastered by your opponent. And so you, you 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 fight to get the submission and you fight against being submitted. But in terms of allegiance, in terms of, of the way we submit to one that we have given our lives to, submission does not need to mean defeat. It doesn't mean defeat. It means that we are taking our lead from the one that we are following. So an artist can submit themselves to a master to learn a craft. And so believers submit ourselves to our master, Jesus, in order to learn from him and to become like him. Submission, when you lovingly give your life to something, does not mean defeat. Okay, it doesn't mean that we, that we lose right? It doesn't mean that we lose who we are. It means that submitting, uh, uh, when we submit to, to to Jesus, we submit all that we are to Jesus so that he can glorify himself through who he has intentionally made us to be. And so whether this is your, your cultural background, your family of origin, your story, um, the redemption that you've experienced from the, the wounds that you've encountered in life, your passions, your hobbies, your intellect, your relationships, whatever it is, submitting to Jesus is allowing him to craft all of these things into a completely unique expression of the image and glory of God. In this sense, submission is beautiful. Submission is full of of hope and growth and empowerment. But it doesn't mean that submitting will be easy. It doesn't mean that always submitting to Jesus is going to be easy because it means that we are no longer our own Lord. And we no longer pursue as Lord those things that we like but are not Jesus. We're not our own master. And if we've been, if part of your story is being hurt by authority, then it's going to be difficult to think about submitting yourself to another authority. But we need to recognize how Jesus operates as Lord. He is Lord, He is King, but He doesn't dominate those in His charge. See, so He humbly and gently draws near to his people in self-giving love. And so in this passage, we see that, that our king, Jesus, draws near. Mark says that he draws near to Jerusalem. And it may just seem like a casual phrase, but this word drawing near is so full of meaning in in, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Um, Jesus said when he arrived on the scene, uh, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the gospel. And if I'm remembering correctly, when we talked about that scene in Mark chapter 1, we talked about how this phrase, drawing near, was a phrase that was used of priests when they drew near to the presence of God in the temple. But here, Jesus is not waiting for us to draw near to him, but God is drawing near to his people. And so Mark says that they drew near to Jerusalem. And so there's so much here. But first, we need to understand and just believe and receive that Jesus is near to all who believe. Jesus is near to you. Jesus is is close to you. He's not a king who rules from some far away throne but in our joys and in our sorrows and our struggles and and in in the beauty that we experience in life, he is near. He's given us his his Holy Spirit. Jesus is, as we'll remember in the Christmas season, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And so Christ is near to you. He loves you. When we get knocked down in life, he's, he's not like the guy outside of the ring shouting, get up. He's in there picking us up off the ground, setting us back on our feet, caring for us. So Jesus is is near to us. But on the other hand, for those who are opposed to Jesus and his lordship, then this nearness of Jesus, Jesus coming near to Jerusalem is language of invasion. We've been talking about this throughout the gospel of Mark, that the kingdom of God is, is not on the defense to the kingdom of darkness, but the kingdom of God is invading the kingdom of darkness. We've talked about how the scriptures say that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the, the, the church and the kingdom of God. Gates are not an offensive weapon. They're a defensive weapon and they will not prevail The kingdom of God is storming the gates and and delivering the captives of the enemy, setting them free. And so this is the language of invasion. But whether Jesus drawing near is to be understood by you as something to be celebrated or resisted all depends on what kingdom you belong to. Completely depends on what kingdom you belong to. And so when you become aware of something in your life that rivals Jesus for the throne, when God brings that to your attention, how do you respond? How do you respond when God makes you aware of something in your life that is rivaling him for the throne? Do you come to him for help? Jesus, deliver me from this thing. It's distracting me from you. It's, it's, it, it can't have the throne, I want you on the throne, redeem this thing in my life. If it's something that I can continue to enjoy, then by all means, but if it's just gonna end up in your seat, I want it out. Or do you come to Jesus and resist him and say, back off Jesus, I've already given you enough. Haven't you taken enough already? This I'm keeping for myself. But we can take courage knowing that if Jesus is coming near, if Jesus is coming into your life, whether to comfort and encourage or to oppose some aspect of your life, he does so gently. He doesn't charge into Jerusalem on a war horse. He doesn't charge into your life brandishing a sword. He gently and humbly, peacefully enters in and calls For our allegiance. He comes to Jerusalem not to make war, but to make peace. Peace between God and man by making a sacrifice. And so Jesus draws near to you, not to make war against you. He doesn't come to to break you or to beat you into submission. You are not his enemy. You are a captive of his enemy. And Jesus wants to set you free. And so if you're here and you're, you're experiencing the nearness of Jesus to be, as something to be resisted, just know that he wants to welcome you. He doesn't resist you. He wants to invite you into his kingdom. He wants to ransom you, deliver you, and save you from oppression. And so he draws near to save you. So Jesus in this text is the king who draws near to save Jesus saves us from all of these lesser lords in life. These things that, we, that we're that tempted to turn to and give ourselves over to pursuing because we think they'll make us happy. We'll think they'll make us content. They'll, we think that they satisfy us, but these lesser lords, they can't save. They're unable to save. And so the very act of faith, right, giving our allegiance to Jesus, if we declare him as Lord, it pulls us out of our allegiance to these false saviors. Maybe it's money that that we, we believe can save us from whatever ails us, or maybe we're using alcohol or other substances to, to numb the, the difficulty in life. And so rather than coming to Jesus for salvation, we're just pouring chemicals on top of it so that we don't experience the pain. Maybe it's, it's romance, relationships, and sex. Maybe it's a spouse or a career. All of these things, not bad things. They can be good things. But if they rival Jesus for allegiance, then they are false gods who are powerless to save. And they actually set us up for failure. So the false idols in our life, they don't just let us down, but they actively take us down. They cannot last. They will crumble. And so there's the beautiful hymn that says, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And so we build our lives upon the rock knowing that, that he is sure, knowing that he is permanent, knowing that he is Lord, knowing that he can actually carry our lives and our issues and our problems. And so Jesus has drawn near to save. He draws near to Jerusalem, not to put Rome to the sword, but he draws near to Jerusalem ultimately in a week's time to put himself on the cross. So Jesus is our king, but he's also our sacrifice. He's also our substitute. He's the sacrifice that makes peace. See, so in the Old Testament, God provided a way for the people to continue to draw near to his presence in the temple, though the sin in their life should separate them from him. And so... Um, God understands that sin and, and is, is, though it's not, it's, it's not good. He doesn't want it for us. It's going to happen. And so he provided a way for us to not be cut off from his presence. And so the wages of sin is death. And so if there is sin, something must die. And so he allowed for these animals to be used as sacrifices, that their life would be a substitute for our life, that they would die instead of us. And so sin brings death, but God provides a way for a sacrifice to die instead of the people. And so the death that our sin deserves is ultimately received by Jesus so that we can be reconciled to God once and for all. Our King has laid his life down for mere peasants because he loves us because he desires a relationship with us. He is humble and gentle, and he allowed violence to overtake him so that we could have confidence to draw near to him. And so rather than, than waiting for us to get our act together, he drew near to us. He laid his life down for us so that we can confidently draw near to to Jesus, James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so this is Jesus. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He has come near to his people, not only in Jerusalem 2000 years ago, but to us today. He's drawing near to you to save, to redeem, to deliver us from sin and to establish us in his kingdom. But there's an awkward end to this story. See, Mark is the only one that records it this way. And it's, it's the strangest thing. There's an awkward end to the triumphal entry. The people of Jerusalem, they came out to meet Jesus as he entered the city. But then suddenly they disappear from the story. Jesus goes into the temple and he looks around and it was already late. So he goes home. There's all this fanfare, this huge celebration and praise, shouts of Hosanna. They think he's the king. He goes into the temple and it's just empty and anticlimactic. And so like Zechariah 9.9 9, was the passage that prepared them to receive Jesus as king. They should have been prepared to follow Jesus to the temple because of Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, They should have known that when the Lord appeared, they should have known that when the king arrived, when Messiah came, he would come to the temple. But like so many of us, the people only heard from the scriptures what they wanted to hear the scriptures saying. And Malachi 3 is all about God bringing judgment against Israel. The the people he is refining are the sons of Levi. These are the priests, He's coming to bring judgment and, and, and refine the, the priesthood and, and, and cleanse the temple. See, the, the priesthood was corrupt at this time. It was, a, it was a political faction having more to do with keeping the people in line with Rome than actually worshiping God. And so Jesus comes to the temple. He will come to the temple again in the next passage and he will cleanse the temple. He will drive out all of the things that ought not be there. But the people, they don't follow him to the temple because as far as they're concerned, he's the king that saves them. They don't want the king that comes to purify them and bring judgment again them. They want Jesus to storm the palace. They want Jesus to, to, to storm the palace, to overthrow King Herod because it had been so long since there had been a king in David's palace, a king on David's throne. But Jesus, he goes to the temple instead. And he does so alone, just with his disciples. Because the king that the people needed most was not the king who would sit on David's throne. See, Jerusalem is an important place in scripture. Not only because it's the city of David, the city of the king, where David built his palace. But it's important because there are two kings in Jerusalem. One in the palace and one in the temple. See, God was always Israel's king. God was always Israel's true king. But when the temple was destroyed and the people were carried off into exile by the Babylonians, Ezekiel is sitting in Babylon. The prophet Ezekiel is sitting in Babylon. He has a vision of the glory of God, the presence of God leaving the temple. And even when they returned from exile and they rebuilt the temple, the presence of God, the glory of God did not return to the temple as it had in the past. And so God's presence had never returned to the temple as it was before. But here in Mark chapter 11, Jesus, God in the flesh, the manifest presence of God, stands in the temple once more. But it's anticlimactic. There's no fanfare, there's no worship. So church, we're, we're approaching the Christmas season, right? Next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, where we remember the anticipation that the people experienced waiting for their King to come, waiting for Messiah to come. And we remember that we are still waiting for Jesus to return and to make all things new, but we are not without the presence of our King. We are not without the presence of Jesus. We are not without the Holy Spirit. He has not left us as orphans, but his presence dwells in us and among us. And he has made all of those who believe a temple of the Holy Spirit, that in order to be with Jesus, you used to go to the temple. Today, you go to the body of Christ. You go to the church. You go to believers because the presence of God is present when we gather together. He is with us. Christ is present in the gathering of his people. He draws near to us. And so church, let's not make this mistake of recognizing that the presence of God in our midst and, and leaving without doing something about it and leaving without responding to that. It's this, it's this, this strange scene, Jesus in the temple alone, he looks around and he takes off. As we come into this place today, as you're here, make no mistake, Jesus has promised that his presence is with us. And so the celebration that comes for the presence of our King, our victorious King, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, not only in this building, but in our, in our hearts, let everything else fall in submission to him. As we celebrate him and, and his presence, we cannot make the mistake of the people in this text. Let's not miss the opportunity to worship, to celebrate, to rejoice in that who he is, that he is drawn near that he has saved us. And so come to him today. Maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've known Jesus in the past, but you recognize that he's not your Lord. You've not been, been giving him your allegiance. There's something else in life that has your allegiance. There's something else in life that you desire. Even if you call yourself a Christian, but you're just clinging to this thing, back off, Jesus, this is mine. You can have everything else. Don't touch this. Then I would just encourage you, whether you acknowledge it or not, Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. He has drawn near not to take good things out of your hands just because he enjoys watching you squirm, but to take harmful things out of your hands because he enjoys seeing you be made whole. And so respond to him today. Receive the salvation that he brings. Receive the Holy Spirit that he promises, that nearness, that presence, that God with us. Receive that today and worship him, not just with your voice with your entire life because he's good. Amen. He is king. He is Lord. He is drawn near. He loves you. He delights in you. And so we give ourselves to him and in his presence, we pray, we sing, we delight, we worship. We cannot miss this opportunity to experience the blessings of Christ's presence. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, all we have is all for you. Lord, all that we are is all for you. You made us, you saved us. Lord, we belong to you. We believe that you are present with us. And so we just declare in this place that Jesus, you can have it all. Lord, you can have it all. You can have our lives. You can have our treasures. Lord, you can have whatever it is that is interfering with with you being on the throne. Lord, take it all. We give ourselves to you. We worship you in this place. We declare that you are the King of Kings. You are the Lord of Lords, our God and Savior. And so God, be glorified in us today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.